Hello everybody, and welcome to season two of Boss Bitch. We made it, we did this thing together. I'm Rebecca Lee, we've got Lindsay Harbert Silverman, Sammy Junio, and our first guest, who is so awesome. She is fascinating, and you do not have to take my word for it because you're gonna hear her soon. She worked in the LA coroner's office, then worked for 15 years at the LA County Sheriff's Department as a crime scene investigator, a CSI, heard of it? Then she went on to write for the original CSI and CSI Miami. Now she's a fucking showrunner for Investigation Discovery's new scripted drama, James Patterson's Murder is Forever, where we crossed paths, and damn, we got ourselves a season two, episode one, boss bitch. So please, welcome from home, Liz Devine. Thank you for joining us, yeah, thank Liz. You. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. This is so exciting. Very um, exciting. I feel like I get to ask you all the questions that like we just didn't have time to ask during the crazy show that we worked on. James Patterson's Murder is Forever. Watch it on uh, Investigation Discovery in January. I can't January. wait. In January. Yes. Six episodes. So. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, I mean... Oh, my God. Where to even start? So many questions. First of all, uh, you're from California. Yes, I'm a native. Uh, very uh, nice. What part? Well, I was born in Berkeley, Alta Bates Hospital. My yeah. parents both went to Cal. And uh, I, of course, defied them completely, yeah. turning down an alumni scholarship. Oh, and my gosh. Going, going to UCLA. Uh, so that was a big deal. But I... Uh, my uncle Ron, who was my, like my mentor as a young person, uh, was uh, a Phi Beta Kappa from UCLA. So, and my grandfather went there. So it's sort of balanced out, mm-hmm. you know. But there was very, you know, it's a very Northern California, Southern California thing. Totally. But our uh, our family has lived in the Solvang San Inez Valley area for a long time. And that's uh, an amazing place to have family. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great place. I mean, my parents have passed on there, but that is where I want to retire. So yeah, yeah, my grandparents were there and and it's just grown from, you know, basically horse ranches. Then you got the Indian casino and then, you know, now it's a huge uh, wine producing area with very good wines and mm-hmm. and uh, you know and it's fun because I go up there and I see my high school friends and it's like I've never left. I mean they're just salt of the earth, great people and and that's that part's fun for me because LA is not that right. <laughs> so you know I have great friends here and and I've cultivated great relationships, but sometimes you just have to go away, go back home to sort of de-stress and kind of go back to your roots a little bit and Absolutely. laugh and joke about the dumb shit you did in high school. And and that's, yeah. and they all, unfortunately, they all remember everything. <laughs> and fortunately, we didn't have social media. So, <laughs> so I can always say that never happened because <laughs> nobody has any evidence of it. Nobody's um, going to pull it up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I fear for people now. It's oh just God. everything is documented so completely. I can't imagine coming to terms with being a young adult and all the crazy shit you do, especially women, mm-hmm. yep. and perfectly fine things to do. We're all exploring. We're all learning. We're all dating different people. We're all figuring it out. But to have it all documented and have somebody post it randomly after, oh, three years ago, and they post mm-hmm. it, you're like, ah! I yeah. look at my it's Facebook horrible. memories now, mm-hmm. and I'm... You know, I didn't really have social media until I was probably 17, 18. MySpace was my first right. thing. Was your space? It was MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> I put a lot of Billy Joel quotes up on that MySpace. Um, You're into those quotes. I, I like really it. am. Yeah, I, need, I need other Girl, people to speak quote. for me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but luckily, I don't feel like many pe- people have access to that anymore, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But even my Facebook, you know, the Facebook memories, mm-hmm. those that pop up now are so cringeworthy <laughs> that if somebody really wanted to embarrass me and do some digging, oh, they yeah. could easily do it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I posted something last week that's cringeworthy. I mean, you know, it's just, I, you know, you think it's a good idea at the time and then people are like, what? Yeah. You know, it's all that tone of voice. Yeah. You, there's no tone to anything you post and people can... You think it's, you know, I always reread it a million Mm -hmm. times. But then I'm like, yeah, I guess if you were coming from this part, this angle, you might think it's, uh, yeah. So I'm right now I'm sort of on a hiatus of social media. Just sometimes I just have to do it a little bit on my own just because, you know, I just need to. It gets overwhelming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Raising a daughter in an age of social media, how how has that? Have you? Oh my God! Okay, so let me tell you this two story. Daughters. Two, oh, daughters. two daughters. Yeah, I have two. Yeah. So it's funny because um, after in between when I was doing uh, development uh, for different projects in between the CSIs that I worked on, um, I actually taught a CSI class at the high school where my kids go, locking out of high school. How and, cool would have that been? Like, oh my god, uh, it was pa- the class was packed. Sure. It was it was been super best. popular. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, these kids are just. It is not. It's just a very sheltered area. It's out is up by uh, Pasadena, mm-hmm. northern Pasadena, right by JPL. A lot of the kids have parents that are rocket, literally rocket scientists and oh, stuff. Wow. So it's very smart kids, but they have seen nothing. Mm-hmm. All right. So one day I decided to have a big talk about um, posting sex sexting, basically. Mm-hmm. And I talked to them about the fact that... Um, if you post a picture of yourself naked and you're under age, you can be a registered sex offender because oh. you are putting out child naked pictures of a child. Correct. Oh my These kids' eyes went boom <laughs> yeah. and they were like, what? And I said, I just I just want to implore mm-hmm. that you guys be so careful about wow. what they you send. Yes. They are. Everyone in that room. And they all were, you know, they were showing pics. And I said, you know, it's not as much the things that you send the people that you like. Although, let's be honest, until every phone had a camera, dick pics and that kind of stuff were not shared mm-hmm. with youngsters. You'd have yeah. to go and buy porn or go to a video store and embarrassingly check out porn and then bring it back and make sure it's rewound because you don't want yeah. them to go, hey, you didn't rewind this deep throat. There. <laughs> but gotcha. I just I just felt like the kids were so sheltered. So and and their reaction showed me that Every one of them was probably violating a thousand things. But I said, you know, when you break up with that person, that shit is still out there. Mm-hmm. And and depending on how that person feels, you don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. And that happened to several girls that my daughter knew that their pictures were shared, something that they sent privately. And I'm not talking upper. I'm talking below the waist stuff. Mm-hmm. Awful. So... I got. On, I mean, I had I had sit downs with you know my my son who's the oldest has autism, so it's a little different situation with him. But with my two daughters, I was like, look, I know I'm coming from law enforcement. I'm super protective, but this is what the law says, and this is what you should not be doing, and this is how you can protect yourself. And I don't know that it super worked because Rachel's had some boyfriends. And nothing's been put out there, mm-hmm. but I know she's sent stuff. And it's just, you know, it's just a different culture. It's just different now. Yeah, yeah. And you just have to make sure that once they're of age, that they try to be discreet. But if they're underage, you, you do have to get in there and get on that and make sure that you put the fear of God into them. I used to make Rachel watch uh, Beyond Scared Straight with me. I swear to God, she'd sit in the room and we would watch. And she goes, Mom, I know why you're doing this. And I go, keep your eyes on the TV. <laughs> I want you to watch this. <laughs> so, I mean, it is, you want to scare them a little bit. I mean, as a parent of a mm-hmm. teen, you know, they're all going to rebel. They all do what every teen has done since the beginning of time. Yeah. But the consequences now, it seems like they're just much bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, she sat right next to me. We watched like binge watch Beyond Scared Straight. I didn't care what these girls did that were in jail, but that can happen to you. They all had boyfriends and were pregnant. And sometimes this boyfriend did that or girlfriend did this to it. I just said, watch mm-hmm. yeah. because you can see how the smallest little decision can change your whole life. Absolutely. So anyway, oh, long yeah. story short. So I did try to do my part to educate those uh, very entitled, very, you know, special kids up at La Cunata to sort of get a little more familiar with what the world was like. I mean, right. I talked to him about yeah. bail, like just 
basically, you know, if you get arrested, you may be eligible for bail. And they're like, oh, that means you just like you pay bail and then it's over. Right. I go, no, bail means you don't sit in jail. The case <laughs> is over. Sit in jail. Yeah. It's, it's nice not. Crime. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> Sesame Street for criminals. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they, they thought that you could pay the fine and it would be over. Mm-hmm. I go, that's not how it is. It's just different now. And so I felt like I did my part to yeah. that. So wait, when you were in college and grad school, did you think you would be working in law enforcement after that? Um, not in college at all. In, at, at UCLA, I was pre-med, just like half the people that went there my mm-hmm. freshman year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that I was not looking forward to another 14 years of school when I graduated. It was really hard at UCLA to be a science major. I mean, I... It, you know, I was a v- really good student in my high school. I was just one of the pack mm-hmm. at UCLA. And they, there were people that were so brilliant. And and I, I lost a little bit of my self-esteem for, from a student standpoint, from, an, from a smart person standpoint, because yeah. I always thought I was a smart person. Mm-hmm. And I went to UCLA. I was like, mm, yeah, I don't know. And they, you know, I'd be, they'd be like, well, go sit by the blonde down in the front, you know, because there were like three blondes in the whole class. And I was one of them. theme in your life, It is. God, I'm like the blonde. I'm so. Really? Total. It it (laughs) makes, I'll tell you another story in a minute, but it makes me crazy. So it was like, oh, you're the blonde in my organic chemistry class. I'm like, you know what? Fuck off. Anyway. Sorry. See, this is what I'm talking about. I got it. That's okay. Lean into it. When you. Yeah. Being the blonde 24-year-old yeah. detective. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. It just the whole the whole blonde thing is annoying to me because you can't possibly be smart. Of but course not. No. 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 So anyway, so once I graduated, I have graduated with a biology degree from UCLA. I, I went to Cal State LA to do a master's degree in uh, criminalistics, forensic science, and no one knew what that was. It, it was I didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. And I went and talked to the professor and I was like, ooh, it's like solving puzzles. This is awesome. So um, I got my master's degree in that. And I did a, a my internship at the coroner's office, and I wow. did it on. And my uncle was chief medical examiner at the time, which is Ooh. the top coroner guy. Mm-hmm. And um, I did my master's thesis on tool marks and bones. So it's like. Stab wounds, basically. What? So, yes. so blo- oh my God, so yeah. many questions. So, you know, I'm pretty good with the whole stab wound thing. And then um, the way law enforcement works, especially it still is like this. You apply for a job because there's an opening and then uh, you take a test. Uh, sometimes it's written and then you, if you get past the written, you take an oral and it's all like oral chemistry exams so it's you have to study for it and you have to and you know it 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 was tough but i got hired by la county sheriff's department in 1985 very end of 1985 in fact they had just caught the night stalker oh so it was a big time yeah they were riding high so um and i worked in narcotics and one of the things that they said was, you know, if you want to get out in the field, if you want to do homicides, we will put you on the rotation, you know, to train. And I was like, absolutely, 100 percent. And what does being on the field mean? It means going out to crime scenes when there's a call. And you basically you would you we would get calls from homicide detectives mm-hmm. and then we would come in and evaluate the crime scene, Got do it. the evidence, you know, basically be a CSI which wasn't a thing then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, absolutely. So I gave my number to, who, and whoever was on call, if they thought it was a decent scene, they would call you. Well, I went out like, I probably went out 15 times in a month and a half. And so I passed wow. my wow. my training really fast because I was just like, this is absolutely the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. So, and I love that. I mean, you go into a house and or a, a location and they're strangers. You don't know anything about them. And you have to figure out what's out of place in a place you've never been. And to me, that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So you have to go, okay, based on what I'm seeing about the general, you know, shape of how the house is, what is different? Sometimes it's a, something that's clean in a very dirty house. Sometimes it's something that's dirty in a very clean house. I mean, you just have to kind of, and you're learning, you're kind of doing a psychological I hate to say profile because it's so oversaid, but you are looking at how did this person live Mm -hmm. and then how did this person die? And then what 
in between, what can I figure out from those two ends of the spectrum that happened here in this night or two nights ago or last night or five minutes ago? I mean, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I just was really fascinated with that. So um, I did... I, you know, I was single. I took everybody's on calls. You can trade off, you know, there are people that have young kids and stuff that you, you have to do a certain number a year, a certain number of call outs, which means you either have a weekend or during the week. It's Friday, Sunday, uh, Friday, Monday, Monday, Friday. So um, you could trade off more than your three times a year. And so I would take wow. everybody's. So I was going out all the time and I, I loved it. I thrived. It was fantastic. I learned so much. Um and it just, I became a blood spatter expert and I did a lot of that. And, uh, you know, I when I left at least the bench, when I promoted to supervisor, um, I was their most experienced uh, crime scene investigator. So that was a, you know, and it was because, the, you know, I always say this and people were like, what? The only way to get good at working murders is to work murders. Mm -hmm. So the that more you sense. work, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, and so that's why... Nationwide, when you get a murder in a very small community or a very small area, the tendency is that it's not handled very well because they don't get them. They yeah. don't know how to do it. And there's a certain way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's not one size fits all. I mean, you have to kind of, everybody has their own way to approach a scene and that kind of thing. But you can't get good at working murders if you've never worked a murder. And, you know, you may stumble on something, and but... Um, you know, there's a definite skill to that. So, yeah. So you just took to it. Like, yeah, I loved right it. Away. I loved it. Was there anything from that time, like a case that you remember or a circumstance that you remember that sticks out, and you're like, "Oh, I'm doing this. I can't believe that," or anything that confounded you? Well, yeah. I mean, you get confounded all the time. I mean, nobody goes into a crime scene and knows exactly what happened. I mean, you know, that happens on TV, but um, a lot of it takes thought and contemplation and sometimes just like when I'm stuck writing sometimes when I'm driving home and listening to bad music or sports mm -hmm. radio something will pop in my head and I'll go oh my god that's how I can fix that scene mm -hmm. well sometimes you go oh my god that's what happened with this stain or what that's what that pattern is or whatever um, a couple of big things happened um, one of my first well not one of my first but one of my most uh, probably um, a case that I got probably too close to um, was the murder of Lois Harrow, who uh, had was a girl that was my age that was shopping at the Pasadena Mall. And how old were you at the time? Uh, 26. So she's shopping at the Pasadena Mall during the day. It's like 5 o'clock. She's buying a, um, I believe it was a wedding shower gift. Came down the escalator and was um, confronted by two men with gun. They took her away. They raped her. They shot her. Um, she ended up uh, being killed. They took her car. They, I mean, it was just this horrific situation. And I was called to look at her car. And I opened the trunk. And inside was a um, earthquake kit that is exactly the same earthquake kit I had in my trunk. It was like she was my same age. That was the so that was the mall I shopped at. Yeah. It was so there were just so many similarities, and it was just that could have been me. That could have been me. That could have been me. And so I was like so gung ho on this case, and um, I was able to. We found semen from both the suspects. Uh, one guy's on death row. Um, but I testified like this was in the old days where you had to have a prelim for each. They separated the suspects. So I had a prelim for each suspect. And then you had the trial and then you had the penalty phase. And then the family sued the mall because the security guards were watching a Dodger playoff game, which oh, tells you yeah. it was 1988. <laughs> um, they Dodgers playoff game. So that makes me 27, um, maybe 28. Anyway, um, I'm giving away my age. Uh, the Dodger playoff game while they were supposed to be securing the parking lot. Oh. And I testified in the lawsuit, the civil suit on that. And they won like $32 million. Whoa. And um, so, the, of course, you know, Ronald Jones and George Trone, the name of the two suspects. And Ronald Jones got the death penalty. And he's still sitting there. Mm -hmm. um, and George Trone got life without the possibility of parole. But it was so... 
I was so close to that that oh, it's kind of funny because when I transitioned to work on CSI, I actually pitched that story uh-huh. to one of our EPs and they said to write it. And it was still one of the most popular CSI episodes. It's called Too Tough to Die. It was season one, episode Whoa. 15. And it's just about that. And what it was the same basic scenario, except the victim didn't die. And so the, the theme of the episode was, um, why do we have a system that rewards the suspect when a victim is too tough to die? Mm-hmm. Because I had the victim be a juvenile, I mean, the suspect be a juvenile. Mm-hmm. And literally, if the victim doesn't die within a year and a day, it's an attempted murder as a juvenile, and they get out in like yeah, two years. Like and so, try to murder you. Yeah. So it, I thought that was a good theme. And anyway, so, so much of my life my real life at the sheriff's department became episodes and not just from crime, but, you know, like my divorce and everything is, you watch the first three seasons of CSI, that's my life right there. I mean, between Catherine Willows and uh, Sarah Seidel, Sarah the young me. favorite character. Yeah. Sarah Seidel's the young me, Catherine Willows is the old me. And they just, so many of the scenarios and cases and things that I worked and, and they're not, 100% 100% the cases, obviously. It's a right. drama, so we're not using real names. It's not, you know, that kind of thing. But it just bringing, bringing what I brought to the table to the show, I was able to know how it feels, how people talk, how they sound, what a crime scene's like, um, how to behave at a crime scene, what you need to be careful of. And I had to get the actors to trust me. You know, how how would I hold this? How would I do this? How would I? Mm-hmm. And so in doing that, um, you know, I started my second career. So yeah. let's go back a little bit. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I jumped. No, there's so many things. I know. I mean, I, like, my <laughs> mind is racing. <laughs> um, so you were you were working as a, a forensic scientist. And how many years were you in that position? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. Mm-hmm. And what what? How, how did you make the transition how did to tv like how did that happen exactly well um when you have a certain expertise especially in la where there's lots of filming going on you know there were times when they'd bring me into certain projects and i would help as a tech advisor so mm-hmm. i worked on the movie jennifer eight i worked on um some movies of the week and um just but it was like two or three days maybe and you know you just kind of help them bring reality for those that care and not a lot do mm-hmm. you know there's so much crap right. on tv where they just don't care they think they know what a crime scene looks like because they've watched tv mm-hmm. this is really not how it is um anyway so i had worked on some features and some movies of the week and then i got a call that there was this show starting um and that uh they got a 13 episode order and they sent me the pilot and they said they need tech advisors and at the time I was running the uh, crime scene unit and the DNA unit as a supervisor and um, I had Fridays off so I said okay I could work Friday so I started coming in and working on CSI on Fridays and you know this was in 2000 so it was a long time ago but it was Olympic year and I believe CBS had the Olympics or uh, whatever happened. The show didn't actually air until October, mm-hmm. which is a little late for, you know, network dramas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I worked on not the pilot, but the very first episode. And I worked on Fridays. And after the episode aired, after the first episode aired, it was a hit. I mean, they were like, this is huge. And they called me at home. Carol Mendelson called me and said, you know what? I talked to Anthony Zyker. And we decided we need Liz there full time. And I was like, yeah, no. So <laughs> I thought, I can't do that. I mean, I got three kids. I'm going through a divorce. I, you know, I can't leave the department. That's security. Mm-hmm. And um, so meanwhile, I'm back at work and we're doing DNA analysis, but we're transitioning from one type of analysis to another type of analysis. I have three, only three analysts that can do work you know, casework. Everybody else is in training. So literally all I did all day long on the phone was say, we can't do it. I don't have the staff. I'm sorry. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. I was like having, you know, seriously going to have a heart attack Mm -hmm. because I was used to my 15 years on the bench. 
I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll work on the weekends. I'll do overtime. I couldn't do that. We we only had a certain number of people, and right. and everybody's working as hard as they could, but there was not enough people. Mm-hmm. And then we completely transitioned from one type of DNA analysis to another, which is still a transition from what they use now. So that it's not one size fits all. The science was changing, and so we had to stay up with that. So after about a month of doing nothing but saying no to angry detectives on the phone, I thought, yeah, you know, I'm, I can, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> so it was still very scary. I mean, I left, you know, I left the department, which is, you know, secure. Yeah, you'd been there yeah, for 15, 15 years, 15 right? years, and I had five more years. I could have had lifetime medical. I mean, there are lots of benefits that mm-hmm. come with that. But um, anyway, so... Uh, I decided to go, and I. It was the scariest thing I've ever done, and I. I did sit my kids down and I talked to them about it, and I think I told you what. Yeah, so my daughter Katie was very precocious, and she was, maybe seven or eight at the time, I think seven, and she. I said, okay, so mom, I'm. I'm thinking about going to work on a TV show. And, you know, what do you guys think about it? And Katie said, Mom, it's so much more important to catch bad guys than work on a TV show. <laughs> and, I, and I said, you know, Mom's been catching bad guys for 15 years. I'm yeah, ready to tired. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move on to, you know, catch fake bad guys. So um, anyway, it was just from the mouths of kids. And my parents were super supportive of me. And so it was... As scary as it was, mm-hmm. you know, I just jumped ship and uh, started working full time. And of course, the minute I jump ship, we go from a Friday night show to nine o'clock on Thursday, opposite Will and Grace, which was my favorite show. It was the number one show at the time. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm so fucked. I'm going to get to, you know. <laughs> so with with the department, you can quit. With, and within 365 days, you can come back okay. at your same rank, your same, you know, seniority and everything. So I had that marked on my calendar. So I, every month I'd like mark off the days. It's like, and it just became such a huge hit. I just never even, you know, had to look at that. But, um, yeah, so, you know, it, it was, you know, I started out on set doing tech advising mostly, but also reading all the scripts and giving notes and learning that you don't just give a note, you know, that can't happen. You have to go, okay, so I see where you want to get with this. Mm-hmm. You can't do it this way, but how about trying it this way? And and so I, I learned, and it's, you know, you can't be completely literal in a drama on television. But at the same time, what was great about the show was it was very important to Jerry Bruckheimer and his company and mm-hmm. Carol Mendelson and Ann Donahue and Anthony that we do real science. So with a couple of exceptions, we didn't make anything up. It was all available science. Um, and they were impo- they really wanted it to be as real as it could be for TV. So obviously we sped up how fast things happen. Right. But uh, and we, you know, put our CSIs in interrogations, which doesn't really happen, but um, that helped the storytelling. But mm-hmm. the science was accurate and it was important to them that we kept up to speed with that. We were constantly reading forensic journals and and just making sure that we were up to speed with the most current science. And and that was important to me as well because I was representing my whole other life. Yeah. And I mean, when we, you know, season one, we had some missteps and stuff. Um, And I mean, I would get bombarded with emails and I'm just like, oh, my God, I can't even read them. Like every Friday morning, I'd be like, oh, God, okay, there's 75. That means that was something bad. And then some mornings it'd be like 20. Ooh, good day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So So. did anyone from your uh, from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department or from just your your past in law enforcement take issue with what you did? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I still hear it. Yeah. Well, we're not like CSI. I mean, they go. They want me to. They have me come and speak at these conferences, and they're like, mm-hmm. as you know, and right before me, they're like, "Yeah, well, you know, it's not like CSI." They say it all the time, <laughs> and I'm just like, and I've had to give speeches before where it's like, you know what? When I started, I would spend 25 minutes on the stand just explaining to a jury 
what it is we did. They had no idea right. we even existed. And they thought the cops did all that stuff. And television thought the cops did all that stuff. And I said, now you can you can shorthand it. And all you have to do is explain that no DNA doesn't happen that fast. And, you know, it's sped up on TV. But you don't have to explain the actual existence of your own, you know, position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it has they take it aback a, a little bit and they're like, oh, okay, I guess she has a point. But I'm a little defensive about it, but not in a way where it's like, I get it because I, when I watch shows that aren't mine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I get annoyed because, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, people think they know how all this works. They don't have to look it up or talk to an expert because they think they know how it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And the errors are enormous. I mean, enormous. What's I, the most egregious misrepresentation that you've seen? Well, you know, it's it. They're common, so it's it's like having a million people in a crime scene and, and people touching stuff and picking stuff up, and it's just like it's it's. You know, I I remember saying um, to Ann Donahue, who he, she and I wrote uh, Blood Drops, which was a Writers Guild nominated episode from the first season, and I said, listen, everything that you've seen on TV about crime scenes is wrong. Mm-hmm. I said. 99% of the time, it's me in a bedroom with a dead guy. That's what it is. Damn. All by myself. Yeah. And she's like, that's the coolest thing ever. Yes. So that was, we had Marg in this bedroom. And that whole episode is based on a real case I worked. And it, it's a lonely place. It's a very, you're spending hours in there documenting blood drops and taking pictures and measuring and and it's you and a dead guy. Mm-hmm. And they only get to take the body out when I say they can. Wow. So it's like there's a whole – it's not a million crosses. I mean, have them outside crossing. But, you know, the people aren't in the scene. I mean, usually the, the worst thing is if they have, like, there's the body and they have the husbands right there. Ugh, cry. Yeah. I'm like, he would not be in the scene. Mm-hmm. It's like, ugh. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of errors that are made on TV, and, and you know, I'm a little bit extra scrutinous. But, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like uh, some of the newer shows where they're getting into more of the characters. Um, but I have to say that in some of the most popular shows right now that deal with crime, um, I think they give the actual crime short shrift. And, and I, I think that audiences now that have been watching CSI expect a good crime. Give me a good crime. I'll like these characters mm-hmm. and I'll get into what their relationship is. But don't bullshit me on the crime. And I have to say that there are several very popular shows that they did that to. Mm-hmm. True Detective being one of them. I'm sorry. Season one, that was the worst oh crime God. I've ever seen. Jesus. I don't even remember what the crime was. And the was. most obvious suspect like, ever. I know. Oh my it's God. the weird, what? creepy guy that lives I'm down the road. I'm a fucking... Yeah. Like, mode, like... <laughs> Yeah, that's Press. right. Yeah, and the night of also. Hello, oh, the night of. Don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah, don't terrible. Even get me terrible. started. So oh great characters, mm-hmm. great dialogue, all that stuff that's really great. But I feel like you can have both. Mm-hmm. Give me a good crime scene. I mean, the guy. I'll tell you what happened in shooting that is they have the dead girl on the bed and the director's like more blood, more blood. I know that's what happened mm-hmm. because then you give the guy walking down the road. It's a bloodbath in there. He doesn't have a drop of blood on him. Right. And they arrest him. It's like, it can't be that guy. Do you not yeah. understand that? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> so I never thought it was him, mm-hmm. even though I knew that it was the director that wanted all the blood. Right. Mm-hmm. But also you've got, you know, I just felt the female characters, were, I mean, the lawyer that has an affair. I mean, stop, uh, that, stop, that stop. That came out yeah. of nowhere. That yeah. made no sense. Yeah. What's and, going on? Yeah. Here? So yeah. anyway, I, I love the show, but I feel like... When when shows push character really hard, they don't push story as mm-hmm. hard. And I feel like there's plenty of situations where both are good. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look for. I look for, get me compelling characters. I'm all in, 100%. And they had great compelling characters in the night of, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But... And they didn't even solve the crime at the end of it, which is like, I know. what are you doing? Yeah. Who does that? Like, how does So anyway, that's just me. Yeah. But I'm on a rant. So. No, I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, so you started working on CSI and you slowly like moved up and started to write on the show. Like what, describe that experience in your first episode. Okay. So, you know, I was sort of just 
on a cloud for the first couple of weeks because I thought, oh, geez, what did I do? I'm like on set in the middle of nowhere and, and you know, I go to Vegas and, you know. So it was really sort of, I knew what I was there for and that I wasn't overwhelmed with at all because I know my job. But at the same time, I didn't know that much about the day-to-day of a drama. So I really tried to tried to learn as much as I could. And I asked all the stupidest questions at the beginning. What the hell is a gaffer? And why do you call the best boy? What, you know, these guys, but I really wanted to learn. So I tried to, treated it like a classroom. But also I did promise the writers that, um, and we did have a writer's room, which I think is very important. Um, so I told them that anytime I wasn't needed on set, that I'd come up to the writer's room and they could ask me questions and I'd tell them stories, whatever. So I went up and I told the Lois Haro story that I told you about at the Pasadena Mall. Mm-hmm. And um, they had Carol Mendelson, Carol Mendelson came out and said, okay, you're writing that. And I was like, oh, great, no problem, great, great. <laughs> and then I go into Aunt Donahue's office. I'm like, oh my God, she gave me a script. I don't even, I don't have the software. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I was completely freaked out. And Anne said, first of all, we can get you the software. That's not a big deal. And I said, but, you know, what about camera angles and all that stuff? She goes, Lizzie, you work the job. Tell me where I am and then tell me what these people say. And that's all you got to do. And she says, we'll figure out all the camera shit, you know, later. And so... I wrote this script and it was so emotional. I literally was like a wreck writing it because I didn't realize at the time how close I was to that case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's funny is I used to tell my trainees at the crime lab, um, you got to put these cases on a shelf. You know, every time you're done, you put it in a little bin and you put it on the shelf. And I said, the bad part is you never know when that bin's going to come out of the shelf and you're going to find yourself Oh, yeah. You know, re, you know, reliving something or getting very emotional over something. And I said, that's what makes this job so hard because that shit's all still there. Mm-hmm. But you've got to put it away. You cannot have it out in the forefront of your life and your psyche and your mental capacity. You've got to put it away. So I had put that case away. And then when I had to write about it, it brought it all back. And I'm crying and writing this thing. And I'm just like, shit, I'm a wreck. And then you turn it in, which I always say is like term, turning in a term paper. I mean, you're just waiting for your grade. You know, mm-hmm. Is it bad? Is it good? <laughs> Did I suck? I mean, so coincidentally, I turned mine in end of December. And um, we went on a 13-shooting-day location to Vegas. So we're shooting, you know, it's freezing in Vegas, by the way. If you don't know, on the strip at 3 in the morning, it's fucking cold. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we're out there. We're shooting stuff. And, and you know, the show's a hit, but we're still a little tentative. We got picked up for the back end. And, you know, it was it was going well. And then uh, we're in this really high-end house. I'll never forget it. And um, I'm sitting there at the bar, the kitchen, and all of a sudden they start passing out my script. And I'm like, holy fuck. And I'm like, my face turns red. I start getting heart palpitations. I'm like, they're all going to know I'm such a fucking hack. They're, they don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there and the whole crew's reading the script. And I'm just like, oh, God. So I, I'm really nervous. So I start pacing. And then I go sit over by the monitors. And um, Billy Peterson, who plays Grissom, his um, assistant, Roberta, who's really well known in the Chicago film scene, I mean uh, theater scene, uh, had just finished the script. She closed it, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm just like, I close my eyes, and I'm just dying. And she said, "Lizzie, you have no business being able to write that well." Oh, and that's the best thing I can ever say. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and um, the the episode was very much focused on Georgia Fox, who plays Sarah Seidel. And she came up to me and she had tears in her eyes. She's like, I love this script so much. I'm, it's going to be so great. And it really felt really good. And, um, you know, it was very close to what I wrote, which I've seen now. I, I didn't know then. Mm-hmm. But now I know how rare that is. Oh, like absolutely. That script was pretty much what I wrote. 
So um, after that, they hired me as a writer. So uh, season two, I was a writer on the show. So um, and I gave them everything. I mean, I didn't hold anything back. They, there is nothing about my life that those writers, poor things, uh, <laughs> don't know. I mean, they, that's so valuable, though. Yeah. Somebody with your experience to come into a show like that to be able to pitch. Uh-huh. Like such a variety, like you know how it affects your personal life. Yeah. You know how it feels to work a crime scene. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yep. Well, it was there was a lot of pressure on me though. It's funny because um, I'd get a call, you know, and to be it, one time I was going for a weekend at a like a spa weekend in Ojai, and my friend was picking me up. And Anne's like, Lizzie, I need you up in the office really quick. And it's like 7.30 on a Friday, right, in Santa Clarita. So I figure, you know, we'll just slide out. So I go up there. She goes, Lizzie, I've got to have a B story. Tell me something. Tell me something. I've got to have it. The script's due Monday. Okay. Well, I could tell you about the time I passed out in a um, – on a, we were out at a crime in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I, I, uh, we, we had solved the case. And so I'm hanging with the detectives, and we're at a jacuzzi, and I just got to, I just was like, ah, I don't want to hang here. They were playing cards and shit. And I said, I'm going to go in the sauna. And so they didn't hear me. I go in the sauna, and I swear to God, I fell asleep. And really, I mean, I passed out because yeah. we were drinking tequila. And I, all right, so I'm in my bikini in a freaking sauna they call the police because they cannot find me and we were on the news it was like a big uh solve for this uh case Mm -hmm. it was a woman that was murdered in zuma beach and the kids had stolen her car and brought it to new mexico whatever but um so i wake up and i'm in the sauna and i'm like half out of it and i'm feeling hydrated and so dehydrated i mean i'm i'm look so thin and i walk out of the room and I walk out into the hotel and there's cops everywhere and they've been looking for me. They're like, oh my God, where have you been? And I'm like, okay, first of all, I'm in my bathing suit. Can, mm-hmm. Does anyone have a towel? I mean, this was <laughs> so embarrassing. So I told her this and she's like, that's perfect. And then she, over the weekend, made up this whole story about a whole sauna thing and it, you know, it, it, so it doesn't have to be that that was actually a crime. Right. But it was just tell us something. Yeah. And I would, give them something and you know good writers can take that and take that kernel and go crazy which she did so again nothing about my life isn't on that show Mm -hmm. i mean it really and even uh when i went to csi miami same thing i mean there were still more cases and sometimes i'd forget about a case and i'd be like in the room and i go oh you know what we had a case like this and they would all be like tell us tell us tell us (laughs) so yeah i mean it was fun it was a really good experience did yeah. you find it cathartic working through? Because like you said, you never know when they're going to come off the shelf. But Sometimes, but other times, um, because it was sort of, it was almost like ping pong. So it was a lot of stuff coming down at the same time because I might be working with one writer on one thing and then another. on another. And there were times when I would just get so overwhelmed. I would just be like, you know, okay, um, I, you know, I got to watch bad tv for a while you know you just have to unwind in whatever way you can um so you're not thinking about it because you know the bad part about what i did when i was single you know at the doing crime scenes and all that is that i there was no distraction when i got home Mm -hmm. so it was really really hard to put it away and do you know i i did run I ran I bicycled I did you know those that sort of thing but you never really can put it away once you have kids surprisingly um it actually takes that off because you don't get the time to over you know think it Mm -hmm. and obsess because kids want their mom when you get home they don't care Mm -hmm. what you did all day right so that was actually a good thing for me uh not not in the way where I wasn't overprotective and totally always, always, always go to the bad. You know, I lost my son one time at the fair. I was sure he was kidnapped and, you know, going to be taken and yeah. killed. And, and that's just where my brain goes. Yeah. Um, so that's never good. But uh, <laughs> just having the time to I used to say that, you know, the commute to work was my time to get ready for work. And the commute home from work is ready, was my time to get ready for home. Mm-hmm. And it, it did help me that time. And I would just listen to whatever, you know. Sometimes it was music, not always. Sometimes music, 
for me at least, if it's a song that takes me back to a place, it can get right back to where you pull something off the shelf. So I sometimes I don't listen to music. I'll listen to like talk radio mm-hmm. or sports talk or whatever because I don't want to go there. I don't even want to think about going there. I don't even want my brain to even have a, a moment Yeah, because it can – it, it would, at least on my way home, it would destroy my ability to just walk in the door and hear, Mom, and then, you know, have that persona. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it it's a lot to carry around. I bet. Oh, man. So you were on uh, the original CSI, and then you kind of jumped to a, to all of them? I, no, just, of them? just Miami. Um, yeah. What happened is um, after season two, Leslie Moonves told... Carol Ann and Anthony that he wanted to do another show, a spinoff, and pick a city. And um, I don't remember who picked Miami, but one of them picked Miami. So then he's like, great. So I helped them. I went on, uh, you know, research scouts in Miami, talked to the cops, talked to, you know, them. We got a lot of cooperation, way more than we got from Las Vegas. Uh, where we actually were using the real radio cars, the real uniforms. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so if we needed backup or extra radio cars, we would just hire the security that was there anyway mm-hmm. because our cars matched their cars. And, you know, we paid for that, but but their cooperation was unprecedented. They were great. Uh, and we were able to do things that we couldn't do in Las Vegas because we had to – that was a fictitious police department mm-hmm. and fictitious uniforms. And so all that came out of our budget when you can – Interspersed reel with fake, it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I worked uh, and then I got the writers up to speed as far as what is the show, what are criminalists, what are, you know, what are their jobs, what do they do? So I worked actually both shows, uh, season one and two, CSI Miami, and season three and four, CSI. And obviously those are two completely different writers' rooms, right? Yes, yes. And one was in Santa Clarita and the other was in Manhattan Beach. Oh damn. So it was Could they have been further apart? And it was and it was the four oh five. So I mean those of you those of you from LA can imagine that I was Hey Liz, describe your nightmare. (laughs) We got you. That was it. We got you. Yeah. It's like hold my beer. Um, yeah, it was um it was hard. Uh, I enjoyed it because it was very creative and bringing one group up and then going back to what I call the mothership mm-hmm. was always that was much easier. There was definitely a, a shorthand with everybody there. But, it, you know, as a single mom, it really took a toll on just my personal life. And, and uh, so after season four, CSI season two, Miami. I went to Carol Mendelson and I said, yeah, I can't do both shows. Mm-hmm. This is, it's really killing me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, pick a show. Mm-hmm. Just tell me where you want to go and you can go. And, um, you know, I, I felt like Miami, I had more options to uh, move up because mm-hmm. there are a lot of EPs at CSI. Yeah, I bet. And as much as I loved the mothership and I would never have left because I just loved the actors and just everything there was great, for my own personal growth, I felt like I needed to go to the little brother. Mm-hmm. So I did go to Miami. I worked there for six seasons. And um, we did do a crossover with New York. So that's how I got a credit on uh, CSI New York. But um, it was a crossover. So I was sort of David Crusoe's babysitter going from our episode to him going to New York. And it was an episode that Ann Donahue and I wrote that brought him back to New York, which we were excited about because he was, you know, NYPD blue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just get to wear the cool coats and it's just you know, when it's cold in New yeah, York, it's just cooler. I know cooler exactly there. what you mean with the yeah. cool coats. You know, <laughs> you know cool coat. yeah, I, I just love that. So we were able to put David back into a nice coat and, mm-hmm. you know, it looked good. <laughs> so we were all very excited about that. Awesome. And then and then after that, what happened, like your career-wise? Like- yeah, I then, um, you know, I got into doing a little bit of um, development. And so I sold a couple of pilots, mm-hmm. one with Anthony Zyker's group. And then another one with um, Fox, Fox, um, yeah. It was it wasn't 20th Century Fox. It was their little uh, cable mm-hmm. group. I can't remember. Anyway, that was a great experience getting pilots written. I they yeah. didn't get picked up to shoot, so that was disappointing. 
But, uh, you know, then I was just doing pitches and, you know, that is, mm-hmm. I find, you know, writer agony. I don't like, you know, preparing pitches and going out and it, it's like acting and I'm not, if I wanted to be an actor, I would have been an actor and yeah, I, I'm not good at it. Pitching. So <laughs> it's awful. Doesn't make any yeah. sense. You know, writers as a group tend to want to just write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you pitch, you have to do a dog and pony show and... Mm-hmm. You know, those are always hard for me. I always have to sort of work up to that. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, apparently I do pretty well. It's just, it's not, I dread that part. I just, just please buy my idea and I'll write you a great script. I just don't like that part. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I did a lot of that. And then, um, then I came back to, Carol called me to come back to CSI because they were developing new female characters. And she was like, you know, you really helped us shape Catherine Willows and and uh, Sarah Seidel. So we really want to bring you in because we're bringing in um, Morgan Brady, which was uh, Elizabeth Harnois and um, uh, Elizabeth Shue's character, Finley, Julie Finley. And so I came back in and, and helped do a lot of that. So I worked on the last four seasons of CSI again. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. You know, I was like coming home and although they were no longer in Santa Clarita, so they were at Universal, which is much Easier, more convenient. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, you know, it's, it's so funny because I had sort of memorized the, the way the um, stages were mm-hmm. at Santa Clarita and they were completely flipped at Universal, I was oh, constantly walking out and looking at Jurassic Park, and I'm like, "Shit, <laughs> it's the wrong side of the studio." So I never, I never figured that out. Yeah. I just always my automatic was go out this door, and then you're up and you hear, you know, the Jurassic Park theme song. I'm like, "Shit!" <laughs> and then you're looking this at the people right. coming by and the little, you know, the little cart thing, yeah. and I'm like, "Oh God, here I am again." <laughs> so. Um, you know, and then we got Ted dancing, which was fun, and and uh, so it was it was a nice experience, and I got to work on the uh, two hour movie of uh, yeah of CSI, so that was great. Uh, it was that was just me and Anthony and David Rambo mm-hmm. and um, our script coordinator Jack Goodowitz, and uh, we had the best time. The the show, the story, just it's like it fell out of the wall. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just, we just put it up there. And we had broken both stories and pitched to Jonathan Lippman, I think, in three days. Wow. It was, and you know, there were little things that we had to still do, but it was just like, it just came together perfectly. It's amazing. Because there were just some things we really wanted to tie up and character things that we wanted to do. So that was fun. And then um, after that, more development, which again, agony, Mm -hmm. because it's unpaid agony. Yeah. Yeah. so that's why it's residuals are so important for writers because uh, it helps you pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then I got the um, James Patterson show. That's right. Yeah, that's where our paths crossed. Where, where these Rebecca. ladies met. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you were you were the showrunner. Yeah. Like, what a great trajectory, though. Yeah. You know? It. You know. It's. It was great. It. You know. I. I. I really tried to learn from everything and I've made a lot of mistakes a lot of bumps and bruises along the way and and I feel like if you don't learn you know why are you here Mm -hmm. I mean I come from law enforcement where you know it's very very male oriented very much a boys club but what I liked about it is if there's an issue you talk about it and you move on Mm mm-hmm that's not Hollywood. No. So you internalize it until yeah. you find somebody else who hates that person and yeah. talk yeah. to them about so it. So <laughs> I, I had a lot of a lot of issues. It's a different kind of man mm-hmm, for the yeah. most part that works in Hollywood than that works in law enforcement. So it was a group of men that I wasn't used to. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was a transition. I had to kind of you know, you know, I get the reputation of being a bitch or whatever, but it's because I, I just assume get it out on the table and let's let's get it out here and let's move yeah. on. Yeah. And people don't move on in this town, and Mm-mm, you know, yeah. so you you know, especially as a woman that you know is outspoken, and I've certainly had a bumpy path. Um, it it's sometimes it's a jacket you can't shake. 
And I find that um, women can do the same things that men do in power positions and can't recover. Oh, absolutely. And men, I mean, let's just read the newspaper. These yeah. men that can do all kinds of For heinous decades. things. Yeah, awful. Where I, you know, would have crosswords with somebody and I can't get a job. Yeah. But these guys are, you know, so it... it yeah. The, the female part of it is is tough. And, you know, I've had to learn quite a bit. You know, keep your fucking mouth shut, Liz. You don't always have to say something. <laughs> so I have to learn. You know, I had to learn. and and But there are men out there that I've worked with that cannot get past it and continue to, you know, talk. And it, it is what it is. I am what I am. I own everything I've done. And um, most of it is just being very outspoken. And it's unfortunate that to continue to work in this this industry, you've had to train yourself from being less candid and less upfront in order to not step on the toes of yep. fragile masculinity, essentially. Yep. yep. Um, Which, so you, okay, it's interesting because we, you've worked in two arenas that are, that are very, very male dominated. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, like, which one do you think is more misogynistic overall like which one have you had more problems well i do want to say though to in the defense of cbs and the csi franchise Mm -hmm. is that all the showrunners were female on that show which was unprecedented especially for a cop show so i mean it it wasn't an issue with the women there and it Mm -hmm. wasn't an issue with anthony zyker i would lay down on fire for any of them Mm -hmm. a lot of it was colleagues who just we didn't mesh well sometimes and not to speak out of turn but they were probably very threatened by you especially when you turned in a good script then they're like well fuck yeah (laughs) they didn't get to work on the and i I did work with a lot of great men it was just a few but i do i'll tell you that um it's difficult to compare the two fields you know law enforcement and and hollywood and I'm speaking only of TV Hollywood. I mean, the experiences I had in my very small visits on feature films and stuff, it wasn't, you know, I was really young, but I I never experienced any problems mm-hmm. because they needed something that I had. Yeah. And, and it was a very limited window. Right. So that, I can't speak about that. But for television, I just find that everybody in TV is a white male writer. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard sometimes when... Most female roles are being written by men, and, uh, you know, they don't want to hear what you think that person might do Mm -hmm. when I'm like, what? I I have never heard a female ever say that. Right. And they'll be like, what are you talking about? You know, so men writing what they think females would do on this particular instance, I just feel like, hey, let's get it. You know, how about let's hear from some women. Yeah, God forbid. (laughs) So, I mean, I I feel like, at least in law enforcement, um, like I said, you bring it up, you deal with it, and and for the most part, if you know your shit, they respect you. And I was respected there, and I never had a problem. I was young and blonde, and yes, I got hit on a lot. Some of it was welcome, some of it wasn't. Um, And I, you know, but I... They had a body in a dumpster full of maggots. I jumped in the dumpster. Mm-hmm. You cannot be little Miss Pris, uh, carry my bags, do my th- no. If you're going to show up there and you know that everybody there's a guy, and this is the first female they've ever seen do crime scene, right? You better be ready to do whatever it takes. And so, and I'm not talking about listen to stuff. I'm talking about do your job. Yeah. And I still had my hair done. I had mascara on and I looked great. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. please, I have my standards. <laughs> but exactly. But, you know, if they needed me to jump in a dumpster, I jumped in a dumpster. If I had to collect something off a decomp, I collected it off a decomp. And I'm telling you, within six months, I was the person they called because I was not, I never said no. Mm-hmm. I never said I'm not going to do that or, ooh, that's gross. Uh uh-uh. uh. And there's lots of, there's all this vernacular that cops use. And one thing that bothers me the most, especially with women, is when vernacular is spoken, that 
you don't stop the flow and go, what does that mean? It drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. It's like, listen to the context. You'll figure it out. Just shut the fuck up and get it done. Mm -hmm. And I would have trainees that would go, what does that mean? What it just, what that does is it raises a flag that you're different Mm -hmm. and, and they're all of a sudden going to go. It disqualifies them. Exactly. And instead of just, there are lots of times I'd have to go home and then I call a friend of mine. What the hell does this mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. But if you stop the flow, because with cops, everything's about shorthand. You you don't have a lot of time. You got to get shit done. You got to transfer information. And the more you raise that flag, I'm different. You're you're impeding the process. You're slowing it down. It's like you're throwing in a big mud pile, mm-hmm. and now you gotta you gotta make your way through that. Yeah. So um, I just didn't do that, and you know, like I said, I I was up for everything. I went on a million calls when I was first training. I kept my mouth shut. I listened to how people talked. I you know I would wasn't spo- I didn't speak unless I was spoken to, and I learned very fast what cops do. And once you get into that and they respect you, I had no problem. Mm-hmm. But you have to jump in both feet. Yeah. And yeah. you cannot pull the girl card. And I never did. And I could have. Because when I started at the crime lab, there were only five women working there. Mm-hmm. And I was the youngest and blonde. And I looked like a surfer girl. Mm-hmm. So when I went out on crime scenes, they'd be like, who the hell's that? And sometimes going, eh, you know, or and a lot of times, like, what the fuck could she know? Right. And so you had to go in there and go, this is what the fuck I know. I have a master's degree. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I'm I'm up for whatever. You need me to do this, I'll do that. You need me to, you know, whatever. And they started to look past that. Mm-hmm. And I was part of the club, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is a club. Um, I can say that a lot of times in the writer's realm i've not often felt part of the club mm-hmm. so it's a just a different thing different beast, yeah. i'm certainly not the best writer in hollywood by any stretch of the imagination but i do think i bring something different to the table um but it's a it's an interesting table and mm-hmm. sometimes you're invited to the table sometimes you're at the kids table and i'm you know i was at the kids table a lot so it's okay but i you know i found some good writers that i was able to learn from and um, you know, those are my mentors. And mm-hmm. so those are the people that I pay attention to. And those are the ones that I listen to when it comes to read my script. Do you, what do you think? Um, th- and they they have their talent and they're, and it's, you know, it's a very short list and they're women. So yeah. they kind of get it and they get me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have to say a lot of times men don't get me, but I think that's safe to say for a lot of women. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm not I, like I said, I don't play the girl card. I, I never have, and there are millions of times that I could have. I just feel like if you're professional, you shouldn't have to fall back on that. Right. I I would argue that not to play the girl card, but in the entertainment industry, it's easy to feel isolated mm-hmm. as a woman. Yep. Um, and it's it's purely because it is such a boys club and they a lot of the time are very content with it being that way. Yes. Oh, yes. You know, um, but that's exactly why come in and show them that you'll do what you've got to do. Yeah. yeah. And and I just feel like some of the female writers that I know have had to be soft-spoken and be careful about what they say. And they're mm-hmm. quiet in the room and all these things because they don't want to step on any toes. And they're, the, the, the gals that have done that in a lot of senses are more successful than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, And it's not what they naturally want to do. They're no, just trying yeah. to survive. It's and I get way. it. It is. You've got to... Unfortunately, you know, most women in a writer's room, there's maybe one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a rare occasion there's more than that. But there usually are men of authority. So you have to play the game. Yeah. And it's intimidating and you have to figure out how to do that. And if you're a young writer, it can be very difficult. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very difficult. Yeah. Well, I would say that we could talk 
for probably oh three more hours. <laughs> this forever. I oh my goodness. I'm a big yacker. <laughs> no, we'll no, to, this we'll is have all to do another episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm down. Be great. Um, um, but we usually ask one more question yes. to kind of wrap things up. That's right. Um, if you had any advice for young women, and it could be you know in your industry or industries, uh, or we've been asking kind of generally, what advice would you give them? Well, I would research everything that if you want to get into a field, you know, get in there and read about it, research about it, find out about it. You need to come in with knowledge, come in. If you go to a meeting, research that company, research their presidents. I mean, you you need to come in with an upper hand and it's very can be very intimidating sometimes when you read IMDb or whatever on a particular group or company, but go in knowing what they're about, what they've, what their strengths are, and then figure out maybe what your strength could be in the arena that they've set up. So what can I bring to them Mm -hmm. and have that thought out? And I mean, if you pass me on the freeway, I am yakking to myself. I go through what I'm going to say in interviews all the time. Mm-hmm. I talk to myself. I think it's a sign of intelligence. Others could. I would agree. <laughs> but have some things. And it doesn't mean you have to actually say all these things when you go into an interview. But you should never go in, into any kind of meeting or interview cold, even if it's just what they call in Hollywood a meet and greet. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. they're putting your name out there. They want to get your face out there so they think of you when projects come up. Those situations especially, and you'll get a lot of those when you're younger. Now, there's no job up to you know talk about, but they just want to get you in sort of the realm. You need to do all the research. They're going to maybe know you. They probably won't. They're going to say, tell us something about you. Have a good anecdote story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be funny. It just has to be relevant. And it should be relevant based on whatever that company is doing. Mm-hmm. So you need to do research and you need to look at it and think about it and go, okay, if I want to be a writer, I need to be able to tell a story. So go in with a couple of story options. And some could be anecdotes about yourself. And some could be, you know what, I noticed your company's doing this or that. And uh, I just did this podcast that was super cool. Let me tell you about this person I think would be a great subject for a show. Mm-hmm. Whatever. But come in with energy and enthusiasm and, you know, and that's the best, you know. In th- to me, I look at enthusiasm as almost a a special diamond gift you know it's it's when i interviewed rebecca she was like ready to go and i was so desperate oh jeez i was like <laughs> i was i was ripping my hair out i needed so much help and it just she was ready to go she was enthusiastic she wanted to start and it was just that to me is especially with females just show them that you have the energy and the drive and mm-hmm. and never talk about anything personal and i tell this to rachel my daughter all the time nobody wants to know about your boyfriends anything just girlfriends whatever it is just come in with enthusiasm you're ready to work and it, it always say yes can you work tonight yes can you do this on saturday yep sure can constantly until you get to the point where they've trust you and then you can say, eh, actually, tonight's my mom's birthday, you know, or whatever. Right. But I, I do find that sometimes we try to work a job around our schedule. Mm-hmm. And I don't, as a hiring boss, I don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I want you to be able to work and then the rest of it is, you know, your personal life. Right. Mm-hmm. So never say no. Even if you have to make 50 calls walking out of there to rearrange your schedule, of course I can work. Of course. Absolutely. I'd love to. Yes. That'd be great. That's what you got to do constantly. Mm-hmm. Get in the dumpster. Get in, Get the, in the dumpster. Dumpster, <laughs> dumpster dive 101. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. It has been great. Such a you. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank much. you. you yeah, guys are awesome. Goodness. You're awesome. You are awesome. <laughs> Everybody's awesome. <laughs> so many more stories to be continued. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sure. I got a million of them. All right. I can't wait. <laughs>